Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 3, Billy Mitchell. William Billy Mitchell was born the son of a wealthy Wisconsin senator on December 29, 1879. After his death of February 19, 1936, he would be called the father of the United States Air Force. His love of flying started with the new century when he watched Orville Wright's flying demonstration at Fort Myer in Virginia in 1906. It wasn't long before he was taking flying lessons at the Curtis Aviation School in Newport News, Virginia, two years later. By 1912, Mitchell was in the U.S. Army as an officer in the Signal Corps. Assigned to Tour Asia, he was chosen along with 20 other officers to explore the areas where the Russo-Japanese War took place. With his experience in flying and the vast distances covered in the recent conflict, he predicted Japan's rise as an air power, and that one day, Japan would challenge the United States in the Pacific. But it wasn't long before Mitchell and the United States had other things to consider. Soon the Great War in Europe broke out, with the U.S. coming in on April 6, 1917, as it declared war on Germany. Taking his experience and enthusiasm for flight, it wasn't long before he now a lieutenant colonel, went from observer to working with America's allies and studying the advantages of flight during this war of trenches and minute advances. Promoted to colonel in the U.S. Army, he was now in charge of the U.S. air support, bringing intelligence of enemy movements to the allies. He was the first American officer to fly over the front on April 24, 1917. Now in his element, Mitchell was a tireless leader as he organized U.S. air operations. Soon, he was promoted to Brigadier General and in charge of all American air combat units. In September 1918, he planned and led the nearly 1,500 British, French, Italian, and U.S. aircraft in the air phase of the Battle of San Miel, one of the first coordinated air-ground offensives in history. As the war ended, Mitchell was now the Chief of Air Service, Group of Armies, as well as the Chief of Air Service, Third Army. He was an American hero, dashing in and out of the clouds. His name rivaled Pershing's. But during the war, it didn't take Mitchell and his fellow pilots from the U.S., Britain, Italy, and France long to figure out that flying would change wars in the future. Their current planes were simple, weak machines made of wood and canvas. But one day, just like every other weapon ever used in war, Mitchell could easily imagine aircraft made of sterner materials and using more powerful engines. Then they'd be able to fly right over the enemy's front lines and gather information. But that was just the beginning. Carrying explosives, aircraft would be able to locate and attack the entities that made it possible for a country to wage war. But this idea of strategic bombing violated a code that, to a large degree, survived the First World War. Men lined up, offered battle to each other, away from the homes and civilians. But seeing war in its starkest reality, if factories, rail lines, and communication centers could be taken out, along with the subsequent 
however unfortunate, civilian casualties, wars could be made that much shorter. What civilian population could tolerate such destruction aimed at itself? Yes, this was a change from the accepted norm, but consider what Mitchell and his fellow pilots flew over each day. Muddy trenches, cold, disease, and suffering. To his thinking, slaughtering thousands of civilians behind the lines was preferable to the deaths of millions of soldiers. When he got back home, Mitchell started preaching the benefits of air war, but also the dangers of being left behind from this new face of battle. After all, if he thought of it, someone else would. He predicted that in 10 years, strategic bombing would be the norm, and that the only thing that could protect the United States then was control of the air, not a job for battleships. And although handsome, charming, and persuasive, Mitchell's message was getting lost due to its context. At that time, most people still hadn't been behind the wheel of a car, much less traveled by plane. That privilege still belonged to the elites. So, the American people tried to picture a mammoth battleship made of steel, with its turrets that could send a shell for miles, being threatened by a plane made up of wood, and it simply did not compute for them. Then again, Mitchell also received confused looks from the leaders of the Navy, who should have had a more informed opinion. He was soon introduced to the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, along with a group of admirals, to explain his thinking. He asked them to consider creating and incorporating naval aviation, because, and he could have chosen his words more carefully here, the day of the battleship was over. Roosevelt astonished by the rather direct and crude manner of speaking, reacted by describing Mitchell's idea as pernicious. The admirals were in complete agreement. One would think that a former brigadier general and war hero espousing a probable superior type of warfare would be listened to, but Mitchell wasn't. His message was two-part, and both shook the foundations of naval tradition and big business to their core. Also, one must remember that at the time, there was no Secretary of Defense or a Pentagon. It was simply the Secretary of Navy and the Secretary of War. Only in the future would there be an office to represent the military's interests to Washington. And Mitchell, perhaps unwisely, tried to solve this problem in a direct, almost frenzied manner, probably due to his concern and America's exposure to attack. But it's sometimes better to woo rather than war against your enemy. And the establishment, military and political, was quickly becoming the latter. As Mitchell continued to explain his ideas concerning how future wars would be fought, his vision grew and incorporated other components. It was no longer that the Navy needed their own aviation. Now, a third department a branch for the Air Force, equal to the Navy and war, should be created. But taking even this a step further, all three needed to be organized, which meant subject to a larger Department of Defense. It must be remembered that, during all this, no one was asking. 
Understandably, no one in power willingly gives it up, trusting it's for the greater good for someone else to call the shots. But Mitchell was doing more than that. In one statement, he was saying that battleships were the past, a waste of money to make, and that aircraft could be made for a tiny fraction of their cost. With this, he was creating enemies for himself of those that mattered and had influence. And thus threatened, they didn't care whether he was right or not. The resistance at first was verbal. But Mitchell, a natural-born speaker, magnificent in his uniform, covered with medals, simply brought up cost and that controlling the air over America's shores was a superior deterrence to battleships. Those who benefited from the construction of battleships had dealt with challenges to their power or position before, but this was different. People were starting to listen to Mitchell's message. Wasn't he a hero? Wasn't he, after all, just trying to protect the United States? Why would he lie? So, those interested in protecting the status quo decided it was time to act. Mitchell soon found himself ordered, he was, after all, an officer in the United States Army, to stop telling his superiors how future wars would be fought and won. But Mitchell, probably because of his upbringing and sense of urgency, kept pushing his message. But he would now spend more time with civilians, as he was getting nowhere with his fellow officers, because, as he put it, quote, changes in military systems come about only through the pressure of public opinion or disaster and war, unquote. And he was trying to avoid the latter. But explaining his views to those outside the halls of power would not protect the United States. So he thought up a plan that would cut through all defenses and employ that most American of ideas. Put your money where your mouth is. He soon let it be known that he would prove that he could sink, under war conditions, a battleship with his aircraft. He suggested using a captured German battleship. Mitchell's plan was agreed to by Washington, which put the Secretary of the Navy into a corner. But, hoping to stop this experiment before it could take place, certain admirals conducted their own test. On November 1, 1920, the Navy bombed the battleship Indiana off Virginia's coasts. The concluding report stated that, quote, The entire experiment pointed to the improbability of a modern battleship being either destroyed or completely put out of action by aerial bombs, unquote. But then, the New York Times found out and reported that the Navy's experiment was done with bombs filled with sand. Congress, shocked by the trickery, wanted new tests. They wanted Mitchell's tests. The Navy now had no choice but to acquiesce. The arrangements were made, but it was decided that all results would be held until the information could be analyzed. Then an official report would be released. But Mitchell didn't like the sound of this and said so publicly. In reaction, a week before the test that was scheduled on July 21, 1921, the chief of the Air Corps tried to have Mitchell removed for insubordination. But the new Secretary of War, John Weeks, could see that the public and media supported Mitchell, and he was left alone. 
On the day of the demonstration, the German battleship, the Ostfriesland, captured after hitting a mine during the war and brought to the U.S., was put into place. To the admirals and naval experts watching, the Ostfriesland was an example of naval might. Along with them, but more open in judgment, were 300 others, including senators, representatives, cabinet officers, and 50 newspaper men. A few days before, a naval officer was quoted by the Washington Star as saying, the Ostfriesland, quote, was a wonderful ship, built as nearly unsinkable as possible. She had four skins to protect her against mines and torpedoes and heavy projectiles. She was also divided into many watertight compartments by bulkheads, so that, no matter how many big holes were made in her, she would still be able to get home. Unquote. Former Secretary of Navy Joe Daniels added to this by saying in public that he would happily stand on the deck of any ship Billy was about to sink from the air. And the ridicule continued. The ship was now in position. Then, in came a fleet of Martin bombers, each carrying 2,000 pounds of explosives. They could have carried more. Although war conditions were agreed to, the planes were not put under a simulated attack and came in at a slow 98 miles an hour. Then, at 1219, the first load of explosives were dropped. To more than prove his point, Mitchell ordered his men to avoid a direct hit and instead dropped the bombs to either side of the ship. His belief was that the resulting, quote, water hammer, unquote, would do the rest. And he was right. By 12.40 p.m., 21 minutes into the challenge, the battleship Ostfriesland disappeared beneath the waves. Shocked beyond all belief, the admirals present hid their faces, and not a few tears, behind handkerchiefs. The admirable battleship was gone. The proud naval men were humiliated, and a way of life and war had just come to an end. A few weeks later, in an effort to save some face, the Navy reported that the Ostfriesland had little topside damage and that the flooding that did her in might have been stopped by an efficient damage control party. However, the argument ignored the obvious, that if one or more of the bombs had landed on the ship, there might not be a damage control party to stem the flooding. As the results were conclusive, there was no reason to wait to release. So, the New York Times wrote, quote, No fleet afloat is safe if it loses control of the air. Control of the sea is now insufficient. Control of the air is vitally necessary, unquote. And really, that was all Mitchell was trying to say. And victory for him was complete. Because of the results, budgets were quickly reduced or put on hold as further examinations were made. But a multi-million dollar industry does not simply give up the fight. Then, in a sense of egotism, a seemingly fair criticism to make of pilots, of making sure his message was received, Mitchell had mock air attacks made on New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. The newspapers again summed up the correct lesson in that the Army nor Navy would have been able to do anything about these attacks. Then, 
probably going one step too far, Billy put his flyers over the Naval Academy at Annapolis. This was his way of saying that the Navy was now in a secondary role in the nation's defense. But again, all this was just demonstrations. Billy did not have the power to change anything. That power resided with those in Washington. And Senator William Bora of Idaho was one of them. Two weeks after the sinking of the Ostfriesland, the senator announced on the floor of the Senate that he questioned the spending of $240 million on six battleships already under construction. He ended with the statement that it would be wiser to just build airplanes and submarines to protect the U.S. and save the rest of the money in the process. Not to be outdone, Senator William King of Utah wanted a bill that would take three proposed cruisers, the Saratoga, Lexington, and Constellation, and change them into aircraft carriers. Billy's words and actions were one thing, but when those that held the purse strings agreed, it was time for those connected with the making of battleships to fight back. Their first attempt was to put out a report under the name of the great World War I hero, General John Pershing, that stated the battleship was still at the core of the naval world and at defending the United States. To this, Mitchell replied flippantly, and he probably shouldn't have, that if he organized his aircraft, he could wipe out the entire Atlantic fleet. And the American public, having the proof put to the test, supported Mitchell's rather abrasive statement. But business is business. Arrangements were being made behind the scenes to neutralize the messenger and his message. In business, the tactics, strategy, and terminology of war are often used. And one of the main lessons is of using only approximate force against an enemy. Anything else is a waste. So those interests, now threatened, did not openly attack Mitchell, who was, after all, a war veteran, only showing the government the error of its ways, while saving the taxpayers' money. To an American, that's a real hero. Instead, those set against this change in military priorities used another war tactic. It was decided to be patient and only strike when it was best for them. That chance came soon enough. When Mitchell married his fiancée on October the 11th, 1923, his superiors, under pressure from certain congressmen, sent him on a honeymoon inspection of Hawaii, the Philippines, China, India, and Japan. The idea was that the message would lose its shine without the messenger. Mitchell was gone for nine months, and the message may have not as shown as brightly, but it didn't dull either. It really didn't matter. When Billy came back, he had another argument to add to his cause. He complained that the brass of the Army and Navy barely spoke to each other, and each one's hatred for the other ran through the ranks. So, how could effective communication for a strong defense between the two be possible? Now, anyone who has studied military history knows this is nothing new. But Mitchell used it to demonstrate the idea that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So, with this situation, how is Hawaii supposed to be safe from Japan's growing air power? 
He then ended his message to Congress with, quote, I think if we plunged into war tomorrow, it would take us at least two years to get on a par with Japan, unquote. The first part of his message was to win the ongoing war for America's military. The second part was, unfortunately, lost in the frenzy. Again, with that clear eye for how things could be, Mitchell saw the future with Japan challenging the U.S. and the Pacific, and they were building their air force to do the job. In that same speech, he further criticized the Army and Navy by saying that they were always making decisions based on precedent. In other words, looking backward. This new third dimension, air combat, was all about looking forward. Mitchell was cheered on by the press and public. The War Department had to admit to itself that their passive attack on him had utterly failed. Then someone came up with the idea of using Mitchell's ideas against him. If he could use antics to prove his case, they could do the same. So the Secretary of War, John Weeks, scheduled his own public test. Clearly, aircraft with bombs could sink a ship. But what if the aircraft never got through? It was deemed time to prove that anti-aircraft fire canceled out Mitchell's flimsy planes. Again, observers from the Navy, Army, Congress, and the media gathered. Three planes were sent up to fly at a low speed, pulling behind them a target 10 feet long. Each plane was to fly at a different altitude, while three-inch guns were to take aim and fire from the ground. During the first part of the test, coastal artillery shot off 39 shells, but they all missed. Then, two of the planes lowered their targets to 1,000 feet. During their pass, machine guns started firing at the two trailing targets from the ground. This time, thousands of rounds were used. When the targets from the two planes were reviewed, it was found that one was completely undamaged, while the other had a single bullet hole in it. The newspapers wasted no time in reporting on what happened. Secretary Weeks was humiliated and angry, and the public, once again, clamored for a change in the status quo. As things did not turn out the way Weeks wanted them, it was time for the gloves to come off. Mitchell was demoted and sent to a remote post in Texas. But instead of giving up, Mitchell fought back the only way he could, by putting his argument in writing. He made sure to include his dire threat about Japan's growing air strength. With Mitchell's demotion, his pilots were under someone else's command. Someone who was not a pilot. A decision was made for some of the pilots to fly through a storm instead of taking another course or postponing the trip over the Pacific. And 14 of Mitchell's men died trying to make the flight. If Mitchell wouldn't shut up to save his own soul, he certainly wouldn't hold back concerning the care of his pilots. But his written response to this tragedy was beyond any type of criticism leveled by a man wearing the uniform against his superiors. His opening statement basically said, The war and naval departments were guilty of incompetency, 
criminal negligence, and almost treasonable administration of national defense. This was intolerable as far as Washington was concerned. President Calvin Coolidge himself ordered Mitchell's court-martial in October of 1925. The charge was centered around the following, quote, Any organization of men in the military service bent on inflaming the public mind for the purpose of forcing government action through the pressure of public opinion is an exceedingly dangerous undertaking and precedent, unquote. Mitchell's response was gallantry at its finest. In essence, he said, fine, do what you want with me, but let's not lose focus of the main issue here, namely, the conservative elements of the military-industrial complex were ignoring the opportunity of air power to the detriment of America's defense, and Japan's air capability was still growing. The court-martial began in early November 1925 and would last for seven weeks. One witness after another testified on Mitchell's behalf. The two demonstrations were brought up, but it didn't matter. Mitchell had been standing up to the power interests of military contractors and their friends in Congress and the White House, and that could not be tolerated. During all this, a Blue Ribbon Committee put out a paper stating that the battleship was still at the center of America's defense and that nothing seen in recent events could lead anyone to think that the airplane posed a serious threat to these giant naval weapons. But the facts weren't on trial. Mitchell's treatment of his superiors was. Whether he was right or wrong did not factor in. On December 17, 1925, the court found Mitchell guilty of all specifications of the charge. The court then suspended him from active duty for five years without pay, which President Coolidge later amended to half pay. But Mitchell would not be silenced. On February 1, 1926, he resigned and spent the next decade giving speeches across the country and writing for magazines. However, now as a civilian, his ability to influence military and public opinion was reduced. Still, his message rang out wherever he went, and again, it was altered to change his growing concern for America. Now, he said, the U.S. was not ready for war, a war not of its choosing. Japan would one day soon engage with the U.S. over Asian possessions and raw materials. In April of 1926, he wrote that Japan would start the coming war with America, quote, with an aerial attack against the U.S. involving the dispatch of two huge disguised aircraft carriers to American shores in a surprise move while negotiations would be going on behind diplomats' doors, end quote. He was also quoted as saying, quote, Japan never declares war before attacking. End quote. And he was right. During the 1930s, legislation was proposed to reverse Billy's court-martial, but it was not to be. On January 28, 1936, the House of Military Affairs Committee voted against the reinstatement. While the vote was taking place, Billy entered the hospital with a variety of ailments, including an extreme case of influenza. 
He died the next month, on February 19, 1936, at the age of 57. Mitchell was the only individual to have a military aircraft named after him. The North American B-25 Mitchell was brought out in 1941. In 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt, in recognizing Mitchell's contributions to air power, elevated him to the rank of Major General, two stars, of the Army Air Corps retired list, and petitioned the U.S. Congress to posthumously award Mitchell the Congressional Gold Medal for, quote, in recognition of his outstanding pioneer service and foresight in the field of American military aviation, unquote. It was awarded in 1946.